This is the Meiji at 150 student podcast. My name is Vanessa, and I will be talking about J-pop. Hi there, Vanessa. Hi there, Professor. So we're talking about J-pop. Yes, we are. Okay, so why did you choose J-pop for your topic? Um, I chose this topic because I've been learning music my whole life, so starting with uh, piano, and also, I was also in a chamber music group in high school. So through my basis in classical studies, I was really interested around with music all around the world. So then with this pop culture segment, I really wanted to touch base with the Japanese music market, because if we think about Asian music in general, we think about Korean pop, we think about Mandarin pop and, or Taiwanese pop, but in our Western nation, we don't really think about the Japanese music industry. Hmm. So you mentioned that you're in a chamber group, and you played piano in the chamber? Uh, I actually played cello. So oh, then okay. um, piano I did until uh, ARCT performers level. Uh-huh. And after that, I wanted to learn something new. So I started cello. I never really did any examinations for it, but I, ch- I joined the group. We performed all over Vancouver, uh-huh. including at seniors' homes, hmm. and also back in China as well. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned your background is, is mainly classical music. I imagine a lot of uh, Mozart, Beethoven, that Oh, kind for of sure. Thing. But then classical music, they, it is the fundamental of all music, right? Mm-hmm. So to understand modern music, even rap today, mm-hmm. we need to go back to Bach. We need to go back to why these beats are existent, right? And then this gave me like an in-depth analysis. I was able to understand more music and Mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. (laughs) So maybe pop music isn't so much of a departure from classical music as that we might think. It's not. It's not at all. Mm -hmm. So when you're when you're listening to the J-pop, did you start to recognize certain chord sequences, chord patterns, melodic structures, things like this that kind of are redolent of classical music? Um, I would say uh, chord structure because um, everything is based on specific chords and honestly most songs have four to eight main chords right. and uh, it's just a play on everything. So mm-hmm. you start with pocket bells, canon and D. Sure, sure. So then the, uh, the bottom eight notes that I played as a cello, very boring but very necessary, <laughs> it's the fundamental for any pop song. Mm-hmm. And so then what did you discover when you were doing your research on Japanese J-pop? I will start with the music industry. Uh, Japanese, they're actually the second largest music industry in the world. Their revenue is $2.7 billion USD, and that is extremely significant because Japan is geographically so much smaller than many countries in the world. Like, and it's also very significant is because uh, most of their sale revenue comes from the sale of CDs. Hmm. So here in Vancouver, we... Do not, uh, we do not think of music in CDs anymore. We download, we stream, we Spotify. And uh, the Japanese music market actually surrounds most of their music downloading in CD form. Remember those days in the States when there was Tower Records? <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> I don't remember too much, <laughs> yeah, but I, was say. <laughs> I actually, I did, uh, I don't know, like I remember renting movies with my mom at Blockbuster. Right. But that was very, very early on. So pretty much like renting movies, non-existent in, mm-hmm. in North America. But it's very relevant in Japan. Yeah. Uh, so Tower Records, they have liquidated all their assets. And their only location is actually back in Japan. Yeah, a giant Tower Records store. It mm-hmm. used to be in Shibuya, which I think, I think even that one shut down. But there's still rental stores like Staya. 
uh, where you can rent video games, you can rent books, you can rent DVDs, you can rent CDs. But you're right, over here, you know, you don't really see these anymore. For sure. People, especially with Napster and LimeWire and the kind of illegal downloading, mm -hmm. but now it's the streaming kind of yeah. kind of undercut the entire physical music market. Mm -hmm. But in Japan, what they've done is the producers like Sony will actually put things into the CDs to make it so that you can't rip the CD. Yeah. And so I remember, I think there was the first one to do this was a, a Ayumi Hamas Hamasaki uh, disc, which certainly I didn't try to rip or anything like this. I don't know how I discovered this, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it would let you do like the first track and then about half of the second track. But then it would just it would just be completely blank after oh, that. Oh, that's And so this is the way that they tr they try to prevent people from ripping these CDs. Mm -hmm. And so even the ones that you rent from places like Staya, you have them for two days, but they actually electronically prevent you from ripping them. Oh, and but then they also make renting CDs very affordable. Yeah. So then, which makes it possible for their market to be able to rent CDs all the time. Yeah. And you mentioned how expensive CDs are oh, normally. Yes. So then in Japan, there was a law brought into force in 1953 regarding the resale maintenance system. And then they actually set a mandatory price, uh, which today it's around $25 per CD. So that is the minimum. And that's for one CD. Uh, so when talking about J-pop today, what are some of the most what are some of the most well-known bands? What are some of the most well-known genres of popular music? Japanese pop initially started in the 1990s, and uh, their main revenue is actually through boy bands and girl bands, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like the Korean pop industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's really different, what I found in my research, is that there was this one particular band that really stood out. They're called the AKB48. And as the name may suggest, they are supposed to have 48 members, but as of 2015, they have over 130 members. So how this system works is that they have auditions twice a year, so the older ones would graduate out and the younger ones are actually kind of like understudies for the, for the main girls. So then, uh, so this group was initially formed by Yasushi Akimoto. He wanted to form a girl group with their own location where the girls can perform on a daily basis. So it's kind of like a meet your idol up close kind of situation. So uh, they're located in the Akihabara area in Tokyo. Which is why it's called AKB. Yes. Akihabara. Yeah. And uh, so they started off with three teams of 16 and each team had their own theme. So then team A would represent freedom, B would be cute-like, idol-like, but then they became so popular that they expanded and formed sister groups in China and Indonesia. So that makes them the largest idol group in Asia. And also other places in Japan too. So there's, mm -hmm. I think there's NMB48, which for Namba yeah. in Osaka, there's and one then, in Nagoya, mm -hmm. like all of the big cities. Around. They're all structured off of AKB48, right. yeah. And, and so the idea is that you have these girls, because in most cases they're pre-adolescent and adolescent girls, right? Mm -hmm. And so performing every night on a stage, almost doing a concert every night in rotation. It is very significant. and. I think it's like a very good concept because most idols, they only give the occasional performances. So then this will give, give like a personal basis with the fans. So then this is why it made them so popular. So then uh, what's really interesting with this group is that every year they would actually have elections. And then to be able to vote, you have to buy a CD and each CD would have a voter code. So many crazy super fans would buy hundreds of CDs just to support their favorite member. 
And these are national elections. I, I mean, it, it's amazing. They get reported in the press. They're, they're all over the TV shows. And, and so the elections are for... I mentioned there's hundreds of these girls spread across all of these groups all over Japan. But there's only a, there's only a dozen or, or maybe a dozen and a half or two dozen of, of whom uh, are super significant. Are super significant, and they're yeah. even called like the the upfront girls. I mm -hmm. forget exactly what they're called, but they're the ones who go on the TV they're shows. They're the face of the right. face of the group. Yeah. And so then you know the people will actually lobby, and like the girls will actually lobby to be to be elected. Mm -hmm. And so then you know it, some some girls graduate out of the group every year to be replaced by the younger ones, and then some girls will you know, fall, go into the the face group or whatever it's called, sure, and then, sure. and then and fall then out of it. This is why their group is so complicated, and they need these voter codes. I mean, this is probably why that contributes to the 2.7 billion dollar revenue, right? And this is just one group that mm -hmm. that this man has produced, right? Yes, yes. And then there's uh, something else that I've looked into. She is not exactly a person. Uh. Yeah, she is. Uh, she, it's kind of the combination of a popular music in Japan and the craze of animation combined together. So then, this is Hatsune Miku. Hatsune Miku is a humanoid persona, and she was uh, she is formed by a singing synthesizer app developed by Krypton Future Media. So then initially she was created as a tool for people to create music using the voice of Saki Fujita, who's a voice actress. But slowly, uh, Hatsune Miku was brought to the public as an animated 16-year-old girl with turquoise pigtails. So her name comes from a combination of Japanese words for first sound of future, giving her the name of first sound of the future. So her image is everywhere in Japan. And she was even sponsored by Good Smile Racing. And she also sang uh, the original song for Nyan Cat. And um, she also had a live concert, not only in Japan, but also at the Nokia Theater at the LA Live in the 2011 Anime Expo. And so this is crowdsourced music, right? Yes. Anyone can, <laughs> can write a song and add Hatsune Miku's voice to their own melody? Yes. So how is she actually giving a concert then? Um, this, I think the music is developed by Krypton Future Media because they realized how popular her image was. So initially they created animations that were uh, played off, for example, YouTube online that people were able to watch. But slowly, because they realized how popular she was, they started off in Japan giving uh, smaller local concerts and people were crazy for that. So did she have albums now? Um, I'm actually not entirely too sure. She has her own personal playlist, I know that for sure. Have you, have you, did you come across Johnny's Juniors at all when you were no, doing your research? No, I, I, I kind of skimmed through that, uh -huh. but um, I didn't really focus too much. Well, you mentioned the, the boy bands in Korea, right? And, mm -hmm. and so Japan is, is very well known for its boy bands, too, and they're all kind of under this Johnny's uh, production group. Yeah, yeah. Arashi or, jeez, uh, I can't, Takun, I think was one of them. Uh, Arashi is definitely the biggest, but SMAP. Uh, yeah, I, I, I read about SMAP, yeah. Yeah, SMAP for sure, probably the, the biggest of all the Japanese boy bands. Mm -hmm. um, in doing your research, did you come across anything that you thought was, was really weird or, or something that you would uh, like to share with your friends? So something really interesting actually popped up when I was doing research on this market. So there's this article by Quartz I read, and they actually tied uh, Darwin's Galapagos Syndrome and the evolutionary theory to this topic. Hmm. It's very, I thought it was very off base at first, but then I slowly kind of made the connection. Okay. So to summarize, we kind of used Darwin's uh, theory of finches and how they were 
able to adapt to their local environment, mm. therefore resulting um, them being different than other finches in other regions. So this is developed. Uh, this is connected to Japan developing their at their own pace and setting their own standards that were not related for the rest of the world. For example, Japan has seen the power of email, camera phones, and three G long before we have in North America, and this has become normalized there. But as the world has developed, Japan kind of held on to their older technology, while North America and Europe kind of developed with their smartphones and tablets. So then, I made the assumption that their isolation set their own standard. So this theory is similar to uh, comparing、uh, Japan's music industry to other similar developed nations. So Japan, they're still keeping CDs and more、uh, old-fashioned practices that were considered modern at the time. But as time goes by, people people held onto the old practices while the rest of the world switched to downloading. So this shows. That Japan is、um, slow in the development of change, so in the music market at least,、mm -hmm. and it outlines the aging population in the country.、Mm -hmm. I think that is really significant.、Mm -hmm. Their population is shrinking, and there is a decrease in population and a lower birth rate,、mm -hmm. resulting the majority of the population as an older generation. So we can draw the connection kind of there. I know it was really hard to think in the beginning, but then. It things kind of tie together in the end, right?、Yeah. And speaking of cell phones and smartphones, yeah, I mean,、mm. uh, you have smartphones in Japan, but、uh, people have been talking about the Galapagosization of Japanese cell phones in、mm. particular, because people are still holding onto the flip phones yeah, and yeah. almost going back to the simpler technology of, of the of the cell phones. So when you were listening to all this J-pop, where you can you think of,、uh, did, you know, to your classically trained ear, were there、mm. certain Chord progressions that you didn't expect to hear, or I mean, thinking about, would you say, and based on your knowledge of East Asian music in general, would you say that there is a, a kind of tonal difference between music in the Western world and the kind of Western archive of music that were that were kind of programmed to hear, and then Eastern music? Well, initially, when I thought of J-pop, because I. Pretty much have a non-existent knowledge of this topic. I was thinking more of maybe tying it to Korean pop, which、mm -hmm. is very upbeat and、uh, there's also more melodies to it. But when I was looking at J-pop, they it was very electronic、hmm. than what I expected it to、mm -hmm. be.、Mm -hmm. It was very electronic and it was very high pitched.、Mm -hmm. So a lot of the voices they either used、um, technology to raise it up. Or these girls just can sing really high up there.、Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the stereotypes of the the J-pop idol、mm -hmm. in Japan is that the musical talent is less important than having the the right look. And so, whether or not you can sing is is of secondary importance because they can always fix it with. Very relatable for East Asian <laughs> music culture. Yes. And so, it just can you dance? Do you have the right look? Whether it's the innocent look or the cute look,、mm -hmm. like you were talking about for AKB48.、Um, and then, I, I mean, another question is, is how well can you write? I, I mean,、uh, so. Did you did you discover anything about who's writing these songs or who's writing the music for AKB48?、Uh, they do have、uh, certain producers writing it for them. So then, most of them do not write their own music. So then, what happens is that they get a hit song pretty much, and they sing it. They sell millions of copies, and that's the and that's the system. And then they graduate and go on to.、Uh... 
careers in TV, I presume. Uh, careers in TV, some of them just retired because this group had very strict, um, kind of strict rules try, uh, to be inside. So none of these members were allowed to date. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense, for example, because some of the members were as young as 16 years old. But some of the older members are 28, 29, and yeah. they're not allowed to date. So I forgot which, uh, which person this was, but one of the members, she was caught um, being with a guy, pretty much, and she had to quit. Yeah. Why? Why do, what do you, you think is going on there? Uh, they, I think they want to keep the image of cuteness and innocence in the group. The fantasy of availability. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the fantasy of the fans. And so having, if you know that the object of your fantasization is you know, hooked, mm -hmm. basically, is already, already taken, then that yeah. ruins the dream it for a lot of people. It ruins the image of the person, yeah. yeah. That's very... It's very interesting, I think. <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.